Public Radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. For Radio Catskill, this is Rosie Starr. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, Keith Hubbard's Star Talk describes the meaning of the summer solstice. Stephanie Phillips visits Meyer Century Farm in Jeffersonville, New York, and speaks with Ryan Erlwine about the history of the farm. Jim and Pat Sanders from the Northeast Audubon Society are for the birds and highlight the importance of growing native plants. Christine San Jose recites poetry on the theme of gardens, and Rima Fond sings a Chinese Taoist poem about a butterfly. All of that coming up on today's Farm and Country, but first, news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. Secretary of State Antony Blinken heads to Beijing tonight for a two-day visit. He'll be the highest-level U.S. official to visit China since President Biden took office. Blinken told reporters it's important for the two superpowers to establish better lines of communication. One of the clear demand signals that that we get, uh, including from our close friends and partners, is that both the United States and the PRC will responsibly manage this relationship and look for areas where uh, our cooperation might produce results that benefit not only our own people, but people around the world, including uh, in the region. Tensions have escalated between the U.S. and China in recent months over human rights conditions in China, increased Chinese military assertiveness in the South China Sea, and trade with Taiwan, which China claims as its own territory. A federal judge yesterday blocked parts of Indiana's gender-affirming care ban for transgender youth from taking effect July 1st. Indiana Public Broadcasting's Lauren Chapman reports the ACLU of Indiana is challenging the ban on behalf of four transgender minors and their parents. The law bans medicinal and surgical gender-affirming treatments for transgender youth in Indiana. It also bans providers from aiding and abetting parents seeking that treatment outside of the state. Federal Judge James Patrick Hanlon has halted the law's ban on medicinal care and limitations on provider referrals. He wrote in his opinion, preliminary evidence showed the law would violate the constitutional rights of the plaintiffs and risk irreparable harm. However, he stopped short of halting the state's ban on gender-affirming surgeries for minors from taking effect. Transgender youth in Indiana already do not have access to gender-affirming surgeries because it goes against national guidance for those under 18. For NPR News, I'm Lauren Chapman in Indianapolis. Security forces in Uganda are pursuing suspected rebels who attacked a school last night, killing at least 37 people, mostly students. Halima Athamani reports. Ugandan rebel group the Allied Democratic Forces are reported to have hacked and burnt to death students in a school near the border with the Democratic Republic of Congo. Brigadier General Felix Kulaje is a Uganda People's Defense Forces spokesperson. This is signature of ADF and the army has inserted the force to pursue, to those abducted. 
This is the first ADF attack on a school in 25 years. In June 1998, the ADF attacked the Kichwamba National Technical Institute, killing 58 students and abducted 100 others. The ADF operates in the Renzururu Mountains in Uganda and in the Virunga National Park that is known for its mountain gorillas. For NPR News, I'm Halima Uthmani in Kampala. This is NPR News. This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farm and Country. Coming up on today's show, Stephanie Phillips visits Meyer Century Farm in Jeffersonville and speaks with Ryan Earlwine about the history of the farm. Jim and Pat Sanders from the Northeast Audubon Society are for the birds and highlight the importance of growing native plants. Christine San Jose recites poetry on the theme of gardens and Rima Fond sings a Chinese Taoist poem about a butterfly. But first, here is Keith Hubbard with this week's Star Talk report. Thank you for joining us on Radio Catskill for this week's locally produced Farm and Country. country. I'm Keith Hubbard and this is Star Talk. Wednesday will be the summer solstice, the day when the sun reaches its most northern point for the year. Even though the summer solstice actually refers to the moment when the sun reaches its peak in the sky for the year, we refer to the day in which this occurs as the summer solstice. Derived from two Latin words, sol meaning sun and sister meaning to stand still, the term solstice describes what the sun appears to do. If one were to observe the maximum height of the sun each day during the weeks leading up to the summer solstice, one would notice that the sun climbs higher and higher in the sky until it comes to a stop on the summer solstice. The summer solstice is the longest day of the year, and on Wednesday we will see 15 hours and 14 minutes of sunlight. Those living north of the Arctic Circle will see 24 hours of sunlight today, and anyone south of the Antarctic Circle will not see the sun at all. For those living on the Tropic of Cancer, 23.5 degrees north of the equator, the sun will be directly overhead at noon. Cultures from around the world have celebrated the solstice for millennia. The solstice marked the start of the new year in the ancient Egyptian calendar, it was a time of social equality in ancient Greece, and the Sioux tribe held rituals honoring the sun on the solstice. Head outside on Wednesday and enjoy the longest day of the year. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future Star Talk segments, my email address is startalk at farmandcountry.org. For Farm and Country and Star Talk, this has been Keith Hubbard reminding you to keep looking up. Good morning. 
This is Stephanie Phillips with Now You Know for Farm and Country. I'm at Meyer Century Farm looking over the rolling hills, and I'll be speaking with Ryan Earlwine, a seventh generation owner of this dairy farm in Jeffersonville. It's Ryan, can you introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Ryan Earlwine. I'm the seventh generation here on Meyer Century Farm. We've been blessed to be able to be caretakers of this farm and land for around 186 years. It's a blessing to be able to live this life and be here working with family and animals. So you grew up on the farm? Yes, yep, yep. My mom is actually the Myers, so her and my dad took it over. They're the sixth generation. I'm the seventh, and I now have one niece and three nephews that are the eighth. Did you have brothers and sisters? I have two brothers, one older, one younger. And they weren't interested, or they're still here? They are. Unfortunately, the farm at the time was unable to support everyone in the family because of the way milk prices were and the way the federal market was. And, of course, they have families of their own, and I don't yet. So we decided, and we are now working towards a private market that will hopefully become successful enough to bring them back. But they both do have off-the-farm jobs that allow them to come back and help very often. That's great. I did see pictures of children on your website. Those aren't your kids then. Nope. I am a very proud aunt. I have one niece and uh, three nephews. And my two of my youngest two nephews were just born here in January and February. So they're little ones. Very little. (laughs) And I see that you have an education that doesn't have to do with farming. Right. My parents told my two brothers and I that they wanted us to go away for at least two years and get an education in something other than farming, just to get away, see what else is out there, and then always to have a backup plan in case farming doesn't work. So I graduated from Sullivan West in 2011, and I went to Utica College and graduated there in 2015 with my BSN in nursing, and I went on to get my license as a registered nurse, and I will keep that for the rest of my life in case I ever need it, but we're very hopeful that farming will work out. It's a nice skill to have on the side, especially in a farm. That can be dangerous work. Right. Well, my aunt is a nurse. Whenever someone needed something, she was always the person you went to. And I always thought it was so cool. So I uh, decided that if I wasn't going to be a farmer, I'd want to be a nurse. So that's why I decided to go that direction. That's really admirable. Yeah. And practical. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of the farm, when it was founded, who started it? Yeah, so originally, after we came over from Europe, primarily Germany, my ancestors had a farm around 110th Street, Manhattan. It was getting too crowded, so they decided to move up, and they landed right here in Jeffersonville. Our earliest deed dates back to 1837, and it would have been my great-great-great-grandfather, Henry. Great-great-great-great, four greats, grandfather, Henry, and his wife, Elizabeth. And it's remarkable. Did they leave written records of that history? My grandfather has some type of written record that said they were around 110th Street in Manhattan. So he does have that. And then we do have the actual deeds from the 1837. They didn't leave diaries? Not that I know of, but we do know there is a lot of stories that have been passed down. My mom actually has a horn that they had given my grandmother to blow in case there was ever an Indian attack. 
Oh my. So, and it said that when they came up here, it was all trees and she uh sat on a stump and cried. <laughs> but now look what it's become. Oh, if no one else was here, my grandfather had to take a wheelbarrow down to Newburgh once a month to get supplies and back it. it took him about a week. He walked to Newburgh? Yep, with a wheelbarrow in 1837 because the horses stayed up here to do the farming. And then there, there's a time where he got chased up a tree by wolves. I remember hearing that story. So, you know, you hear stories passed down from generation to generation, which kind of makes it special. It's amazing. Yeah. Ryan, is everybody in your family a farmer these days? Oh, no, it's very hard to be a farmer. So, I mean, I have a ton of farming blood running through my veins. I had... Um, my grandparents on both sides were farmers. My dad actually grew up right down the road on the farm down there, and his brother took it over. So I do have my aunt and uncle that still run that farm. And actually, they bored a lot of our heifers for us over the winter. My parents took over this farm. And then I still have almost all my aunts and uncles are still around here. They all have different careers, but they would come help in a minute, which helps the farm go. I have a couple, two uncles that are electrician, one that's a builder, one's an excavator, so they all pitch in because they all love it too. And they have the right experience so you can count on them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan, how many people does it take to run this farm and does your husband help? Do your relatives help? On the farm, it's my parents and I are here full-time. My grandpa, who is 83, still comes up nearly every single day and helps with anything needed, from fixing to helping with the cows to delivering milk when I need it or uh, picking up eggs for my ice cream mix. Whose idea was it to branch out into... The value-added products? Yeah, yeah. whose idea was it? And did you have a lot of discussion before you set forth on that? So it's actually that when I was young, I always wanted an ice cream shop. So when I was actually looking for my processing plant, I got an email one morning from one of the inspectors from New York State, and she told me, she's like, there's a, a farm up in Walton. They have a on-farm processing plant. They have a 100-gallon vat, which is exactly what I wanted. They have refrigerators, stainless steel tables, sinks, and they just happened to have a batch freezer to make ice cream. So it was kind of a godsend. It was something I always wanted to do, and then it kind of landed right in my lap. They sold you the freezer? Yep. So they were actually getting out of the dairy business altogether and moving back down where they're closer to their family. So she was wonderful. She gave me a lot of advice on how to do it, how to get started. I actually went over and visited Weiss Evelyn and Jimmy Weissman over at Weissman's because they had a little processing plant, so I saw what it was like there. And Tanja's Dairy, right over the hill from us, they gave me a lot of advice on how to get going. Ice cream was one of those products that everyone loves. It's a treat, and it makes everyone happy. So, And when I got the plant that had the ice cream freezer with it, and I was like, well, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> so my grandpa comes up nearly every day. My brothers both have off-the-farm jobs that allow them to have a lot. Of, they can work double shifts and then be back here on the farm on their days off. My sister-in-law works with me in the plant. And then my other sister-in-law does all the design work for our brand. But everyone, everyone loves it. And we all have the same goal that hopefully one day this farm and this business will be prosperous and allow everyone to come back and work full-time on the farm. It sounds like a good life. 
it's a adventure that's for sure it is we get to work with family every single day it's a lot of work farming isn't necessarily a job it's a lifestyle you love it you love working with the animals you love working the land and you love working with family so now you know the history of Meyer Century Farm in Jeffersonville the owner Ryan Earlwine told us all about it I'll welcome your ideas for future Now You Know segments. Just email me at stephanie at wjffradio.org. This has been Stephanie Phillips for Farm and Country. Good morning. This is Jim and Pat Sanders for Farm and Country, and our program is For the Birds. Do you know that 6,000 to 9,000 caterpillars are needed to feed one nestful of young chickadees? That's only the tip of the iceberg, because nearly all of our land birds require huge numbers of insects to feed their young, and scientists are finding that native plants are the only way this essential food source can be reliably fostered. We often hear and read that we should plant our landscapes and gardens with native plants, and it's easy to assume that this is just to keep invasive plant species at bay. However, recent studies have shown that there's an even more important reason, and that's to keep our birds and wildlife alive. Healthy bird and wildlife populations are inextricably linked to the healthy insect populations that depend on our native plants. We've read Doug Tallamy's book, Bringing Nature Home, How You Can Sustain Wildlife with Native Plants. In this book, entomologist Tallamy explains that native trees and plants host insect species that wildlife depend on, whereas non-native plants are in most cases devoid of this vital food source. The reason for this is that the non-native plants haven't been here the hundreds of years it takes for insects to adapt to them. One example is a comparison of an oak tree with a non-native Bradford pear, which has been extensively planted for decoration. In a walk around the oak, at eye level, he was able to count hundreds of caterpillars on the oak, while none were found on the Bradford pear. Your first thought might be that it's good to have fewer, not more, insects, but the birds and other wildlife will control the insect population and keep the system in balance. Why should that matter to us? Native plants, which include trees, shrubs, and grasses, can ultimately be easier to maintain, as well as be more natural-looking. The fact that this will foster a larger, healthier bird population will also mean that not only will we see more birds, but more wildlife overall. Fewer bothersome insects may also result from the birds and wildlife eating more of them. Reading Tallamy's book has caused us to look at our own gardening and landscaping in a new light. Over the past years, we've worked on clearing out many unwelcome plants, such as autumn olives, Japanese honeysuckle, and multiflora rose. And we're seeing that although we planted many trees and shrubs, such as crab apples and service berries, that are natural to this area, we'll avoid non-native choices completely will give high priority to establishing the Tallamy lists as highly beneficial to insects and wildlife. Blueberries, apples, and other fruits are also good examples, and will benefit directly from those at harvest time. When we landscape with plants such as oaks, goldenrod, asters, cherry trees, and sunflowers, 
We're providing birds with caterpillars and bugs, fruits and seeds, and this can be just as effective as the bird feeders we put up. We urge you to consider how important it is for us as gardeners and landscapers to use the opportunity to go native in our plantings. Gardeners can make a difference and play a pivotal role in creating safe havens for wildlife. And if you obtain a copy of Talamy's Bringing Nature Home book, you'll get loads of inspiration and it won't take long before you'll be able to see the change that results. We hope you've enjoyed this week's segment. This has been Pat and Jim Sanders of the Northeast Pennsylvania Audubon Society, and we're For the Birds. For WJFF and Farm and Country, this is Christine San Jose. We're in one of our favorite spots along the Poets' Row today, the garden. From Mort Malkin of the Milanville Poets Unlimited. Same house, same no-outlet street, classically suburban, once open to view of UPS and Pony Express. But now a cedarboard fence surrounds to keep the anarchist deer away from the ornamental shrubbery. Next year, shall I expect to see some sort of superstructure if an alien kangaroo is on the loose? This from Susan Jaffa, who lives indeed in the heart of Canaan country, and within that countryside is indeed a keen gardener. Susan calls her poem One More Letter. Oh, Mum, what would you think? My elegant mother-in-law, always kind to me, what would you think if you could see the heavy, well-used lopping shears resting on your Steinway ground? It's not as though I just put them down for a second. They've been there since October. I'm told time isn't calculated in heaven, so I'll do it for you. That's seven months. Time gets away from me, too. It's the way I am. It's the way you probably all sus always suspected I was. But you're a gardener, too, in your own way. In the warm seclusion of your greenhouse, you could recite the Latin name of every plant. Tending the little pots, you were pleased to see the hired gardener tending the gardens. It might not please you who never wrote poetry to know that as I wielded the lopping shears, writing this poem in my head, I accidentally lopped off an entire budding branch of mock orange. But you will forgive me. You loved the way I wrote. You especially loved the way I wrote to you. I live for the mail, you once said. So even when your daughter told me I wasted my time writing letters because you were beyond reading, beyond being read to, I wrote them anyway. I still do. Susan's poem shows us how far that joy in green and growing things can take us to memories, to pleasure in relationships that last beyond the grave. That magic of nature was at work when we were writing poems at Bethany Village Senior Living Community. Here's one that we came up with. You'll see just how far we went. 
It starts. The child was happy to see the butterfly. It was flying all around. I was very grateful to have happy, healthy children. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. Here's from the chrysalis by Emily Dickinson. My cocoon tightens, colors tease. I'm feeling for the air. A dim capacity for wings degrades the dress I wear. A power of butterfly must be the aptitude to fly. Meadows of majesty concedes and easy sweeps of sky. So I must baffle at the hint and cipher at the sign and make much blunder if at last I take the clue divine. Along the Poets Row for Farm and Country, this has been Christine San Jose. Here is Rima Fond with a butterfly song by Chinese Taoist Zhuangzi. was Rima Fond with a butterfly song by Chinese Taoist Zhuangzi. This lovely buzz is brought to you by bees active in a blossoming apple tree 
down the road from Wild Yarrow Farm on New Turnpike Road in Koshekton, New York. If you are interested in pollinating knowledge, the Cornell Cooperative Ulster County Master Gardeners are hosting an event on June 24th in Stone Ridge. There will be a pollinator party from 10 a.m. until 2 p.m. with informative talks, pollinators of the garden, and educational fund for children of all ages. Details online at ulster.cce.cornell.edu. We hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by Radio Catskill volunteers Keith Hubbard, Stephanie Phillips, Christine San Jose, and Jim and Pat Sanders from the Northeast Audubon Society. Special thanks goes to our guests, Ryan Earlwine from Meyer Century Farm and Rima Fawn for her Chinese Taoist butterfly song. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening local to Farm and Country and supporting Radio Catskill public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Listen on air at 90.5 FM on your phone or smart speaker or online at wjffradio.org. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability a community-supported, science-based nonprofit, taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org The Sullivan County NAACP and E.B. Crawford Library host a Juneteenth Parade and Celebration Monday, June 19th. The parade is on Broadway in Monticello from 11.30 till 1. Afterward, a reception at the Ted Strobel Recreation Center with music, family activities, refreshments, and more. Rain or shine. The Sullivan County NAACP Juneteenth Parade and Celebration. Monday, Juneteenth in Monticello. More information at ebcpl.org. It's Francis Lamb, host of The Splendid Table. 